This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. And I'm really grateful for just, yeah, being able to be in conversation with you. So thanks for just like being on stage together. Thank you. I was joking with Liz that she probably does this on a regular, whereas I'm kind of in this like intimate box with people. Yeah. That doesn't look like a bunch of folks looking at me. So it's an (laughs) interesting uh, dichotomy of experiences that we get to live inside of. Well, do you think that this is what it feels like for your clients uh, sometimes that it it's, you know, it can be difficult and it feels like everyone's staring even you if you're once I uh actually this is I mean whatever I'll just start with TMI when I came out to my therapist (laughs) because that's I told her I started closing my eyes and 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 like sort of doing like putting my hair in front of my face and she was like Elizabeth are you hiding from me um and so yeah I hid from my like physically from my therapist because yeah. when I came up because I just I was like it's not a big deal it's just you know uh, um so yeah it can be difficult even to to say things to your therapist yeah I mean to be seen in vulnerability yeah. which yeah. Uh, could be a theme for some part of tonight yeah, um, is really a complex process for a lot of us and is you know the topic tonight happens to be a lot on male conditioning in men and yeah. masculine center folks I yeah. think that could be really vo- useful. Um, I think actually you starting with TMI is really a great frame for me. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's really kind of a a basic context. I don't know how many people, how many people read the book or started to read? No. How many people follow Liz? Liz, can you raise your hands? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. How many people like, like me may have just discovered Liz because of this experience? Anyone? Yeah. Check that out. That's exciting. A lot of male identified looking folks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, this is a good. No assumptions made. Yeah. No, but it's a good, it's a good, uh, I like gender parity in the audience. Um, um, and on stage, we're we're really modeling um, yeah. what this conversation is supposed to look like. I think. Yeah, and I guess I mean maybe you can start us off with like your experience that uh, both with men and women in relationship, out of relationship, that really uh, might have inspired this particular book. And I know there's a lot of like. Uh, being a feminist journalist and all the work that you've done, there's probably a lot of like academic influences. I'm kind of coming from my stream, really curious about also the personal influences, if you're okay to share that. Yeah. So I uh, did women's studies uh, uh, when I was in university. Um, I did a double major in, yeah, women's studies and international development for the money is, is my joke. I usually do. Uh, you know, I didn't think I would actually be able to, I, uh, that this would be a job. And I'm thrilled um, that I, yeah, have the opportunity to, you know, then I became a reporter on a gender uh, sort of rights, women's rights, um, reproductive justice. And I would be in rooms that were filled uh, mostly with women and we'd have these amazing conversations, right? We'd uh, figure out how to fix patriarchy, uh, that it was bad and that it was dumb and women were people and deserving of respect and, and, and all of those beautiful things. And then we'd be like, all right, break. <laughs> and, or, you know, thank the two guys in the back and be like, thank you. Go talk to the men, you know? And they'll be like, yeah. And then I, I really <laughs> thought this, 
doesn't seem like a good strategy. <laughs> this doesn't seem like this is going to actually work. And as we saw the world unfold, and uh, so, you know, I started working on this book actually four years ago before Donald Trump was elected. And so obviously we've come to see uh, the, the worst parts of our society uh, now um, in the most important parts of our society or the most influential parts of our society. And so um, I uh, really was interested in a conversation around masculinity. And the original title for the book was from the TED talk, the TEDx talk, which I did three weeks before the election. And it was called How to Be a Man, a Woman's Guide. And it was kind of snarky. It was uh, very, um, I think, I would say like basic would probably be the, the best way to put it <laughs> when I look back at it. And, you know, I'm proud of that work and, and I'm I, I think that's where I was at the time and where we were at the time too, which is men get your shit together and stop hurting us. And, um, but the more reporting I was, I was doing, the more I was talking to men, the more I started to realize, oh, you're hurting us because someone hurt you mm. and you're hurt by the same system that I'm hurt by. And I started to understand that there was this male code that just like men are not really supposed to talk about masculinity or at least at least not with women because when I would ask questions about it it was it made men very uh, uh, uncomfortable and I would ask very basic questions um, I did this uh, social experiment because I love to do those this is a social I've seen experiment some, yeah. <laughs> uh, I I just think it's really interesting to look at people in the wild, right? So a lot of studies, academic studies, um, the thing that is always the goal is to look at people in their natural env environments, which is difficult to do because you're bringing people into a lab or you're bringing people into a controlled environment. Um, so I love uh, going out in, you know, we did this uh, social experiment with Esther Perel, who's this mm -hmm. amazing therapist. Again, a couple weeks before the election, a lot of things happened before the election. <laughs> I was on a roll. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> we went to Washington Square Park and I had a sign that said free advice for men from a woman. And uh, Esther was giving out the advice <laughs> because she is way more uh, experienced in that department. And I asked every man who came to our table of one simple question. And it was, what's hard about being a man? And all of them looked at me like I'd asked them if unicorns can swim. Like they were just like, they kind of looked at me, then they looked confused. And then <laughs> uh, I just would see so, so much happening inside of them and, and a lot of, of, of confusion. And every answer was different and really profound and interesting. And then, yeah, the the least, and then I, yeah, when, as a journalist, when someone doesn't want to talk to you about something or, right, you just like have 20 more questions. Yeah, You're like, okay, we're going to talk just about this. So I, yeah, I just started talking to, to men about all kinds of things um, and that related to their gender and that to, related to this conversation around masculinity where so much of masculinity was presented as the problem. And yeah, I just started trying to understand what if it was a solution, you know, and, and, right. and a lot of men, I mean, I didn't, a lot of men showed that to me through, through our interviews that they wanted to, they, you know, some, some of the actions or behaviors that they took part in, they didn't enjoy and didn't want to do. Right. Um, so I, you know, I think it's important to look at the system and why they did it. Yeah. I appreciate you speaking to that. And also speaking of the system, I think you, you spoke a lot about how you were in these women's spaces, speaking about women's issues in this explicit mm -hmm. way. 
and as a feminist and as a kind of pretty prolific journalist and writer about these things. Um, I'm curious about, you know, you, you talk a lot about this and just what your reception by women and other feminists in your field, your contemporaries has been and how, if that's shifted, because I know that's, it's pretty radical in a sense to probably uh, center men in this context in yeah. a way like that. Yeah, I just unfortunately felt, I felt disappointed. Um, I well, Look, I've, I feel elated and excited by feminist scholarship and feminism in general. It's like my favorite thing. Um, but I also, in the last few months, I think especially, but also the last year or so, of just some of the language and some of the, um, yeah, this resistance to uh, center male pain in any conversation or just talk about male pain, right? And and I would be told, why are you centering white men, for example, when I wanted to do a story about male suicide in the United States, the where there's the highest, uh, you know, rates of suicide is in Montana and in Wyoming. And it's, you know, men killing themselves with guns. And there's this really hor- horrifying epidemic that's a health crisis in, in, in this country. And I would be told, I mean, I would just, yeah, I would be told, why are you centering white men? I would, uh, I had a comment, someone uh, right, right back to me when I said, I'm, I'm doing this story, poor man with like a smiley face. Mm-hmm about male suicide. And I was like, this doesn't, again, you know, this doesn't seem like the right tone. Uh, this doesn't seem like a productive way for us to fix our problems, to dismiss someone's pain based on th- th- their gender. And this right. actually feels completely antithetical to what feminism is, is all about, which is not discriminating based on gender, right? And so, and 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 at the same time, like I was part of the problem. I, I totally get it. I was also in those spaces where um, I felt so much pain and have been so traumatized by men, <laughs> uh, by men that I've dated, by men in my own family. Um, I have, you know, trauma that is still there and that I'm still processing, but I just didn't see how it was productive for me to just assume that men are bad and that that's why men do bad things. And it's normal that 90% of the violence in this country, if you look at gun violence, for example, the perpetrators are men. 90% of the, you know, sexual violence, it's it, it's men. And it's not just women who are victims, by the way, right? So men are doing a lot of this violence, but men are actually the main victims mm-hmm. of gun violence in this country too. Um, if you look at sexual assault in the military, right? For a woman in the military, you've, you're more likely to be assaulted than to die by an enemy fire. There's a real epidemic there. But in sheer numbers, sexual assault um, is is happening to a lot of men in, in the military. And there's a lot of stigma there, too. And so when we, yeah, when, when, when we are only interested in talking about violence when it fits into a certain narrative that we're comfortable with, I think that it it just erases people. It, it, it erases um, the experience of being able to feel like your pain is being heard and being seen. And then it makes you self-inflict more pain to yourself, inflict pain to others, right? It just leads to this, I think, cycle of violence that we're in um, and and that we're seeing in so many ways, especially with men in in this country. Right. I appreciate you speaking to that level of like what continues to perpetrate perpetrate that wheel of violence and perpetuate it rather. And, you know, we were talking a little bit backstage about this aspect of like, 
where within these steps of reconciliation across this, uh, you know, like what what true like equity within genders and um, healing actually can look like yeah. and where we're a long ways in certain ways and as a social uh, context yeah. to go through what how you know when folks come to the table with their own pain but they're coming from a dominant positionality or a lot of privilege uh, the folks that have been marginalized or identified in a place that have gone through a lot of suffering it's like it's there's a healthy degree of safety and skepticism mm. to be like I don't want to I can't even hear about your pain right now because mm. It, I, I'm still living with the yeah. the living reality of what I, what's coming up for me, and so that takes time to mm. I, I think recover and from that trauma and it's an active process to engage our empathy, engage our support systems, mm. and then especially when talking about men coming to the table when as me as you know, someone I can identify with as I mentioned through my own adolescence and you know it was until I was in these halls and uh entrained by a lot of women in relationship to like be in contact with emotions it's like even how to have empathy to really hold the capacity to hear the impact of things you know how yeah. that take that takes a lot of work yeah. and I'm it, it sounds like through your interviews the things I watched that um, even you provoking this question prompted a lot of emotionality in men that was probably surprising to them. Yeah. And can you speak a little bit about what that was like? You have these uh, really, um, for anyone that's read the book or will read the book, there's really a, a beautiful insertion. These um, amuse bouches. I'm French Canadian, so yeah. <laughs> insert some French. And there's like these um, really beautiful slices of a diversity of. Uh, male voices that are you're really looking to centralize their experience mm -hmm. and can you tell about that inclusion because it yeah. speaks a lot of this empathy from a personal level of what's happening because you have a lot of statistics a lot of research a lot of data and then you use these anecdotes as well to go deeper into like what that looks like for living people yeah I, and again i'm not a man and so i don't know what it's like to 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 be a man in our society and so i uh interviewed several men and the interviews that were supposed to last, you know, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes that turned into four hours were often with men who didn't fit into this ideal, these idealized mm. notions of masculinity. So I would really learn the most about masculinity talking to men who didn't fit into it, right? Who didn't fit into this idealized notion of, you know, being straight, being white, being rich, being cisgender, non-disabled, um, all those things. And so I had this amazing conversations with uh, conversation with my friend Thomas Paige McBee, who wrote this amazing book, uh, a a amateur, um, which you should all woohoo! Yes, they're Thomas Page movie fans, um, and I'm one of them. Uh, yeah, he he wrote an incredible book about um, being the first uh, trans m person man to uh, box at Madison Square Gardens and going through his his transition and, and what he learned about masculinity so he's written about masculinity now for for so many years and he's he's such an expert on it and some of his uh expertise actually comes from just the way that he was treated differently after his transition and so he talks about for example um being in a room and speaking and then everyone would stop talking <laughs> like you all are now, so thank you. But uh, <laughs> but often when he presented as a woman, he just had a People different, and, and women cut each other off too more, right? It's not just like men doing it to women. We all cut off women more than we do men, um, which is these internalized you know biases that we have. Um, but then he also talked about going through grief and going through the death of his right. uh, mother and realizing that no one was touching him. Right. You know, that 
just putting a hand on his shoulder and being, you know, are you okay? Do you need anything? This must be really hard for you. Um, and he said that people would ask him how he was, but they wouldn't actually ask him how he was. They would ask him about logistics, right? They would go through mm-hmm. the financial strategy, handle the burial and the service and, you know, the, the will. And, and again, it's a way that men are cared for in our society. A lot of uh, men that I've interviewed talked talk to me about the, the conversations that they would have with their dads were often, yeah, it was like, how Pragmatic. are you doing? You got your benefits, got your health care. Okay. And that's a way to say, I love you, right? Exactly. That, that's a way to say, a I care about you. But it's, you know, it's very different from, I don't know, that's not the conversation. I have. Well, my mom does nag me about my benefits, but <laughs> I, I she also is like, how are you? And, and you know, I, there's an emotional connection that's, that's extremely, that's, that's, primitive and 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 the, the sort of the primary part of our connection um but but yeah thomas um is 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 just one of the different men that i that i that i spoke to i'm happy to talk you know men who have disabilities sure. have a very different experience of masculinity than men who uh don't and so last night actually we did an event with victor pineda um at berkeley and he is featured in one of these vignettes and yeah he's an immigrant he's uh you know lives in a wheelchair and he um i i talk about him like he's such a womanizer <laughs> and he is such an alpha in that way and sort of like has that energy of a wolf pack leader and um and is has these i don't know traditionally masculine sort of uh characteristics but then he also says you know no one sees me as a sexual being right or no one sees me as um like he says that he actually often feels that men are are uncomfortable around him because he needs help because he needs assistance right that that inherently is in contradiction with our definition of masculinity. Breakdowns of barriers in it, certain ways. It does. It does. And um, yeah, so it's super revealing um, and 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 interesting to talk about. Um, and and to me is why I feel like this book is like a tiny little tip on the iceberg of how rich and interesting this conversation is. If if, if we were to really have it in a huge way. Right. Yeah. I mean, make comes to mind about intersectionality. One of the pieces that we were um, wanting wanting to touch about the complexity of um, how conditioning as uh, masculine center male folks comes at different boxes throughout um, our all our intersectional identities. So, mm-hmm. me as a South Asian Asian man uh, has a whole different relationship. A lot of them familiar to the tropes that are there, but. It's very different than perhaps how a black man is characterized mm-hmm. and has to deal with and contend yeah. with their own masculinity within mm-hmm. that cultural shaping and how that's put on upon them with this double bind, yes. right, of hypersexualizing a lot of conditions and whereas Asian men might be uh, much, much more, you know, demasculated yes. and, and, and the complexities inside of that. And I wonder if I know you may not get to touch upon all those areas, but if you mm-hmm. because you interviewed so many different folks, if that's something that. Yeah. You start to glean anything? Into? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had amazing conversations about, about yeah, black masculinity, for example. So DRC Charrington, who's another uh, amuse-bouche uh, story in, in the book, is gay, black, and, and uh, has a disability. And so he talks about even just coming out to his family, right, and how... I mean, just not accepted. Uh, he, he he was in, 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 in his own family because... His uh, father uh, sort of came 
and, and, and all the men in his family were very hard men, right? Mm. And they were hard because they 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 basically told him like society's gonna break you, right? Like white people are going to find any reason to to hurt you and to hate you. So don't give them another reason, right? right? This idea of and often it's perceived as like, I don't know, there's some stigma or these ideas out there that the black community is more homophobic and that that's inherently, I don't know, that 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 is inherent to their communities. And that's not true, right? It's it's that there's a, it, it's just an added layer that makes it more difficult for you in the world. And it's already very hard if you're a black man growing up in America, like it's already, everything is stacked against you. So you add that gayness, you add disability to that and it becomes, and so he would find acceptance in some communities, right? So he goes to college and he finds a group of young black men who are amazing and and they are accepted by their families. And so it gives him this uh, this new space in which to feel celebrated and, and accepted. And then they go to, out to gay clubs and then they're like, come on stage. And he's like, I can't, <laughs> right? Uh, they don't understand his, his disability. And uh, there's, all, there's, you know, ableism in, in, in the gay community that, that would happen, you know, in, in, in front of his friends and they didn't know how to really be there for him. And he even says, again, there's a lot of emphasis on on the body, right? And body image issues are are huge with women. They're also huge, huge with, men. with men and growing with men and particularly gay men and, and men who are LGBTQ. And so he says, again, by virtue of just existing as a man with a disability in those spaces is like is seen as a as a as a threat right, is seen as this is my worst fear of what I could be as a man, which is not mm. be able to, right, need, need help, need assistance. It comes back to this hyper-independence, right, that men are expected to have. And so, yeah, it's, you know, you know masculinity is racialized. Uh, gender is racialized. There, there, There's, these are, you know, this is not one conversation. It's so many different conversations. Yeah, and I appreciate the the complexity of like how much of this is like so subconscious on, in, in ways that we pass this along and, yeah. and how that our families have passed this along possibly, right? With of these ways of coming from care and protection, like this thing, like I, this is an expression of love and protection. And I think about that, um, the anecdote you used about um, the father with this young boy that had holding a bouquet of flowers yeah. and when he came and took the flowers away and gave them to his sister in 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 question around that was like mm. it, it seemed to be more around uh protecting him from being ridiculed ridiculed around this thing that's yeah. anti-male yeah. in a way yeah parenting is yeah a huge part of this and I, you know i'm not a parent and it's another thing that i i don't you know i can't pretend to be, I can't even begin to, to try and understand how, how challenging and difficult it is to be a parent, especially today. Um, not, you know, and, and there's a lot of, when I was working on this book and I would tell people I'm working on a book on, about men and, uh, I would have a lot of women particularly actually come up to me and say, I'm more worried about my son than I am my daughter. Right. And in secret, <laughs> they would like whisper it to me and, and I and I think that this is a huge part of this, that they a lot of parents feel like there's a lot of resources and tools out there. There's a whole section at the bookstore with like empowered girls and futurist female and um, these models. Right. These these changes that we're seeing in even Barbie. I mean, Barbie is becoming like this. I wants to be this feminist icon. I don't know if it's working, <laughs> but <laughs> you be the judge. 
But they're, you know, Barbie and, and Mattel is just adapting to a, a, a demand and a desire from a lot of parents who are saying, I don't want to give this to my daughter. I don't want to give her an eating disorder or, you know, and, and I think we're seeing especially uh, in, you know, the Ra- Raising Ophelia, this amazing book about just how we trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, girls who grew up in the 90s, I don't know. I feel like it's most people in this room. Uh, like, what the fuck? Like, seriously. Um, sorry, I don't even know if I can swear, but you can believe I it. What the swear. hell? Uh, you can use that that one. <laughs> but it's it's truly shocking, right? The movies that we, I mean, the movies that I saw as a teenage girl, I, I can't even, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't be able to even stomach five minutes of those movies. And so we are now shifting a, a little bit away from that. And I think it's a, obviously a positive thing, but there's no, there's no mainstream conversation about what toys are we giving to boys? Why, why are most parents more comfortable giving, seeing their, their uh, son play with a toy gun than seeing them play with a doll, right? Why is, why are we more comfortable seeing a boy play with something that kills rather than something that cries? Why are, you know, and, and I know this from, again, doing uh, a lot of crowdsourcing uh, through my my own communities because I love social media. It's so fun. You get to talk to so many people that you would have never been able to engage with. And and I asked the men this really simple question of, you know, what's a toy that you weren't allowed to play with mm-hmm. as, as a boy that you wanted to play with and you were told you weren't allowed? And I wrote it. I went to bed. I woke up the next morning and it was just, Failed. I mean, a ama- just a, a slew of responses of heartbreak. It brought me to tears. It was just, and it's a really, I mean, toys and it feels very trivial and easy bake ovens and dolls. So many easy bake ovens. Cute toys. So many cuddly toys. Anything cuddly, soft. Yeah. No, not for you. Um, God forbid. Right. It's like, God forbid you would know how to, you would be interested in take in, in taking care of a, of, of, of a human. Right. Or, uh, God forbid you would be interested in cooking. I mean, how many women are just like shaking their heads, right? That we've we've squeezed that part out of out of out of boys, and we we continue to do that. Um, and and there's this also this almost now, and I'm not saying we've solved everything for women and girls, but there's this. It's kind of cool for girls to be like boys, right? It's like cool right. if she's into engineering and wearing pants and wearing Wear- pants, of course. Um, right? True. Like pants are awesome. If I'm wearing a skirt. What y'all gonna do right now? <laughs> yes, no, it's true. And and for boys, it's not as uh, it's not as celebrated. It's it's not, it's not at all. It's shamed. It's like no, don't do that. Don't paint your nails. Uh, don't hold that bouquet of flowers. Don't play with that blender or whatever, right? And um, and even I was just at an, at an event literally 30 minutes ago uh, across the street and the moderator, you know, told us about her son is five years old and, and loves unicorns. And she has two sons. One of them is this more prototypical, you know, masculine boy who likes trucks or whatever. And the other one likes trucks, but he also likes unicorns and has like a pink backpack. Like um, right. Exactly. Unicorns are amazing. Thank um, you. Hello. And so. Um, she said that he came back from school and he dressed up as a unicorn for Halloween. Or, and and then one, he said, one of the boys came up to me and, and said, are you a boy or a girl? And she says, oh, I got so mad. I wanted to like, you know, of course you're a boy. Of course you can do these things. Of course you can do. And like going into this whole speech. And then, and then I said, well, what did you say? And he said, I just said, of course I'm a boy. And then I walked away. <laughs> right? It's like, exactly. Snap, snap, snap. Right? Children... Yeah, it, it's actually it what, before they're corrupted by our society and 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 you know take on these roles that are made up um 
they, I think, have the natural reaction to that, which is like, what are you talking about? And but we have to unlearn that. And that's like the role of adults, right? To make sure that the next generation of boys can grow up free. Yeah, I appreciate you speaking to that. I mean, I work in education a lot, right? Working with a lot of school systems and you you, you bring some of this research research to like work in public schools and train counselors to be in public schools and as, as well as private schools and other things. And you speak to the inequity within the the male achievement gap and, and particularly boys and learning and and the the influence of socioeconomics on those conditions of these, this further gap. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I want to think it's really valuable research if folks haven't read about that and know about it yeah so there's a real gender gap in schools um we know that um in in a way that basically the gender gap has completely reversed so obviously before when women were not allowed to go to school um men were far you know uh, there were far more men than, than 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 women in schools and now we've had a reverse where there's actually in almost every program. I mean, I spoke at a journalism school at, at NYU a couple of weeks ago and I walked in and I thought it was like a woman's group. And no, it's the entire class was <laughs> just women. So it's, yeah, there's a real, uh, I think we need to celebrate that it's amazing that women are getting educated and are, you know, killing it. But we also have to acknowledge that that the goal is not to just have like 100% women in schools and then, I don't know, men have... Uh, you know, difficulty in those, in those environments. And so there's a gender gap achievement. There's a achievement gender gap, which you uh, talk about where girls just do better than boys um, in school. And it starts pretty young. And there's this idea that it's because schools are too feminized. You've you've probably heard this from like, if you listen to like Joe Rogan's podcast or something. Um, So (laughs) at every event I have to do a Joe Rogan uh, dig. No, he's, I mean, whatever. Uh, He can do whatever he wants. Um, (laughs) I just, yeah don't like some of the things that he says. So uh, if you look at this gender gap and you, first of all, if you look at the data, boys actually do better when they're in schools with girls. Um, There's this idea that, you know, boys only can learn through like beating each other up or something, which is not (laughs) correct or supported by data. Yeah, it's shocking. Um, But there's like a, it's a, it's a million dollar industry to, to, uh, there's a something called the Gurian Institute. um, And there's many different organizations in the United States who go around schools and uh, pretend to be experts. And they use, pseudoscience basically to support um, telling teachers that they should look less in the eyes of young boys than in the eyes of young girls. They should do less eye contact for young boys, Um, that they should, um, you know, force boys to engage in rough and tumble play in sports, even if they don't want to, because that's their true nature and that's how they learn, right? These are things and, you know, the things that they think girls need are, you know, even more ridiculous. So... It's important for us, first of all, to debunk that myth that, you know, schools are that there's that that I mean, there's something so inherently crazy uh, and sort of bananas about the fact that we think that any kind of feminine like femininity is something that boys don't need or have inside of them. Right. We all have uh, these, quote unquote, traditional female uh, sort of characteristics or qualities. If you think about the yin and the yang, right? It's female and male energy. Um, so, so to deny that in boys, I think is is horrifying. But then, if you also look at places where that gender gap, there are places in America where that gender gap disappears. 
So there are mm. schools in America where there's no difference between the ways that boys and girls do. And guess what schools those are? Those are the ones Private that have schools. the most money. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's so in high resource environments, uh, girls and boys do equally good. When there's uh, any kind of yeah difficulty, marginalization, uh, and and poverty, boys are actually girls are hurt by all of those things. Trust me, boys are actually desperately hurt in those environments, and you see it in even the effects of intergenerational incarceration. So girls are hurt when their one of their parents is incarcerated. There's you know significant uh, effects on how they'll do in school. Um, it, but the effect is 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 actually greater on on boys, especially in terms of their behavioral development. And so, yeah, these are to me, this is not evidence that we need to be rougher with boys. It's evidence that boys maybe need more support. And if you talk to a lot of parents who take away the flowers and the soft toys from their boys, um, they believe that giving boys, that there's an idea of like giving boys too much support is bad for them. When in fact, to me, giving boys more support seems like it could literally change the world. Yeah, I appreciate you speaking to that. I mean, it makes me think about um, the gap around just social emotional learning. Because again, another big thing that we promote within the nonprofit structure I work within is the sense that one is education models that's lacking overall, but a lot of times women are just through the relational access portals, like learning to relate and be in contact with emotions. They're not shamed out. Yeah. They're learning to be uh, in conversation and in, in relation to aspects of emotions that are much more nuanced that we all have. And that boys are very early trained to not even be in touch. Like I was numb to most emotions for majority of my adolescence. Wow. Right. And it wasn't until like afterwards, like, oh, that's a feeling? What? Yeah. Like, you know, like, and to put words to that and come into some cognitive understanding, that landscape was not at all discussed in South Carolina where I was raised. And so just to that aspect of like, these are tools of learning that everyone's missing. It's missing. And then boys suffer primarily because it's not being informed and fused within their social yeah. fabrics either. Like they're, they're not in conversation like the locker room conversations don't discuss like how are you feeling brother how are you how yes. are you doing that's, if that's not what's happening right that's not the locker room talk what if that was a locker room talk what would happen no i'm curious like what would happen if you were like because this is i asked this question at our event last night too um we were talking about how men need to push back against this culture right this when someone says uh something sexist or the a lot of this locker room talk is rooted in yeah talking demeaning women uh there's racism there's all of these you know these kinds of oppressions that are all linked um and i said do men ever do that do men actually because we talk about men need to stand up do men do that like have you ever seen that happen right it just doesn't and I, this is where I think it's really important to talk about, we often talk about the hierarchy between women and men, right? Where men are at the top and women, you know, that's the patriarchy, right? The men have control over resources and women have less of that. But there's also a hierarchy amongst men. Okay. And the reason why, I mean, this is my intuitive feeling <laughs> from interviewing a lot of men, is that most men are not enjoying this locker room talk. Like most men are not necessarily, even my uh, inner gut feeling is that Billy Bush actually just wanted Donald Trump to shut up um, and was just like, we, like that uncomfortable laughter. That's all I could hear when I was hearing that tape. Not all I could hear. I mean, it was just, just, just disgusting and, and, tra and tragic, but it was also, 
<laughs> like that kind of that doesn't yeah. seem real. And so it felt like he just wanted it to be over. And I wonder, I don't know, ha- have any of the guys ever had to do that wheezing laughter or yes, there's a lot of nodding. Right. And so there is that. <clears throat> You know, the patriarchy is like a pyramid scheme, right? There's like a 1% of men who actually benefit like from it and who are, again, primarily white, straight, cisgender, all those things. And then the men, you know, the 99% who actually don't probably benefit from most of it, but go along with it in the hopes that uh, that, that that somehow it'll reward them. Or maybe, and I think for a lot of men, it's dangerous, maybe even. I think that's right? what we were speaking to. You, know, yeah. you asked me around like yes. this aspect of being in these men's group circles yeah. and what you know, there's like a contact and conversation around. There's like deep hunger for contact and healthy relationships with other men. And out of these unstructured spaces, what often happens because of this norming of uh, these um, these more, I think, very harmful oriented tendencies, most people have, most men have been harmed by men in trying to have conversations even, or be an expression of something that falls outside of those uh, gender boxes, right? And so, while there's the same desire to make contact with another man around a real experience, that person at the same time represents the most threat to them. And so what I find in unstructured spaces like locker rooms, which I don't actually go to hang out in locker rooms, but <laughs> urinal stalls, you talk they about urinal great. stalls. I do I talk know about, about the urinal stalls. And so you know, I try to social experiment like talking to the person next to me, <gasps> freak out. Oh, what happened? It's, it's, it's kind of like I could feel people kind of getting, some people will be really relaxed. And when I go across, when I cr- travel to other countries, it's really different too. Mm. I've been to other places where people are like kind of leaning a little bit too too close. All right. And I mean, that could be a whole other range of things yeah, too. Yeah, that's um, interesting. But it, it's, it's a very particular experience here in the U.S. that yeah. this happened. And this place where out of my experience, out of unstructured spaces with men, that because we default to these social conditioned habits that often uh, perform in a way that causes more harm in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. that it's kind of almost safer to stay within the surface binds of like, you know, these kind of conversations that are much more trite, like that are probably superficial to some mm-hmm. extent because getting underneath the depth is like, I take a risk and I, and the, my history has shown that risk will cause me a lot of harm for my expression. And often the emotional labor will come from me talking to the women around me to like help me deal with that. Cause I'm probably not going to be able to trust. I can go to another man. I'm like, oh, then this guy talked to me like this way. It's like, you know, man up, what are you, why are you being, whatever it is. Like, right. the, the, and fortunately, I've been out of bubbles of that for a little while being in the Bay. So yeah, that, that's But safe. it also seems like uh, it's, this came up in some of the interviews that it's not, there's like the prototypical, like, all right, like man up, like, but there's also, and I, I wonder if this is more common, an inability to, yes. to know how to handle it. It's not that you are you want to hurt the other guy. It's just you don't know how to handle That's that. That's exactly what one of these men yeah. said in my group the last yeah. week. I just did an intro session. It's like in being in not having this training around basic empathy, yes. when someone brings their pain to me, I actually have no idea what to do. It's like a deer in headlights. Yes. And so what shows up on the yeah. surface is like a stoicism yeah. of like silence. Yeah. But on a, an emotional level, someone's coming with vulnerability and they're going to feel like a, a block. Mm. And so that's this is not a safe person or they feel judged. Where the other person's like, I'm so scared of what I'm going to do to cause harm that I don't even want to say or express myself. Yeah. And they just kind of choke up inside. Mm. And like, it, it, not from that intention or even lack of desire to like get to know, but almost like a duress mm. of st- yes. being under stress. Yes. And again, being in the structured spaces, 
to have a facilitated conversation is found like sometimes even with men's groups I've been in with like four years, like us coming together just to hang out takes a minute. It takes work to get to that place. It's like we need the structured space to be in circle, to have the check-in, to be able to know what the agreements are, to have that consent defined and explicit, to actually learn to model and be okay with that. And then it can start to extrapolate out, but it's it's kind of, it's real. What's the de facto uh, status then? If you are hanging out with guys, if you're not being like, we're going to be vulnerable now. What's the, what's the, <laughs> we just break again. <laughs> this is a great conversation for the audience right? to answer into. But I mean, my, I mean, again, I'm coming from a very particular tier right. of like, I get to be sure. much more self-selective around mm-hmm. the folks I've been in circle with. So many folks are going to model a lot more vulnerability. But I, I think it's, it's like the it's like a it's a bit of like a um, a bit of a gauge of like are you safe? Oh wow! How are you gonna like? How can I actually like wow. lean into this conversation or stays on safe subjects around like kind of like the pragmatics like a little bit deeper than what my dad might do, mm-hmm. but like logistical things like what do you do for work? You know, like the things that we stay in safety with in larger social situations. Sports. I mean, I have, that's actually, know. I have I no know. clue about Same. sports. Yeah, yeah I, I get just... really nervous for men when I'm in those. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I love on. doing sports. I just don't know all the, like, n- you know, the names of things. Um, and, like, what game was last night? Like, I just don't. I have other priorities. Uh, but it seems like you guys have to keep up with that. <laughs> or <laughs> like, not. And then right. just deal with just the consequence smile. of being left or out. You, or you, you yeah. do the laugh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, no, that's interesting because I feel like the, the de facto for women, if I were to say, because I think everyone has shame, right? Everyone has, I think women have more ability to connect with each other. There's, it's less of a, uh, I, I've not yes. been hurt as, as much by, by, you know, or refused connection, I think by women. But I think that we, our de facto thing is to hide how imperfect we are. Like, it's like, I'm great. How are you? Yeah, everything's nice. Right. And it kind of taps into what Brene Brown talks about in terms of mm-hmm. the difference between male shame and female shame in our society. Be- you know, not that there's like something biological different going on there, but given how we raise men and boys differently, uh, men and women differently, for for women, it's uh, the, the shame is like I'm not perfect. Right. Like I don't have the perfect body. I actually have like thighs that are fucked up, or I I'm I'm not a good mom. I I made this mistake at work. Right. I I'm I'm not perfect. And for men, it's I'm I have to hide that I'm weak. I right. I can't show any kind of weakness. Right. That I can't lift this thing, or I can't uh, find this job, or keep this job, or I, I don't know uh, where I'm going. It, it, oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And so I wonder, I don't know. Yeah. Again, in these, when you enter a male space, like, is that the de facto, like you're not really supposed to necessarily go deep into things that you are failing at. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm, I, yeah. I, I, there's probably experiences of that that can exist. Mm-hmm. I get to be a lot of, I get to be behind the scenes of a lot of spaces that uh, I get to hear what actually is happening for a lot of yeah. uh, men in a lot of diversity right. of settings. And so um, there's a lot of parallels in terms of the points of like, again, this desire for connection, not having the tools or a sense of safety to be able to have that and just practice with each other of being different ways. My actual, like my first men's group started like 10 years ago, um, kind of in through these corridors of CIS and having at a party, um, maybe probably induced with a little bit of social lubrication of alcohol, (laughs) right? Just being able to someone like checked in emotionally and we all like checked in emotionally. And that was my first time that I can really remember in a group of like other men, like having like emotional check-in, like a real emotional check-in that wasn't like, like, you know, like 
um, one downing another person or whatever it is. And we were like, wow, this feels so good. We should have a men's group. Like, yeah, we should have a men's group. <laughs> and we did. We, we yeah. did it. And it took work to get that going. But it was like that phenomenon really supported like, whoa, this is it was a paradigm shift for me. And what do you think could lead to more spaces being like that? How, how can men create that in their lives? That's a great question. I, I mean, I feel like um, it takes a bit of like uh, trust to like find one or two other people to practice, like practice partners, like a, another male that they can be willing to do that. And like supporting one another, really turning to each other, um, you know, like kind of like leaning. Like I think of, um, I, I mean, actually in a couple of text threads with men and and uh, what I, I, I see that, see what happens. <laughs> I see what happens is like, even in times of duress, like folks fall out of contact. I see myself under stress falling out of contact. And we, I mean, people do that when they find themselves stressed, they may not turn to somebody actually might isolate. Anyone have that experience here? People are raising their hands, mostly male identified looking folks. And, and what that to me. Women too, women too, but yes, but it is a, but, but yes, retreating is something that, yes. And at the same moment, these are folks I'm in circle with. We're like, we check in when we come in every Wednesday and I'm like, where are y'all going in between the contact? And it's this piece of like, how do we fall in towards each other rather than fall out of contact? How do we fall towards? And it's like, it takes work. Like it takes one person to kind of keep you like, Hey, where's folks? It takes someone to agitate or catalyze or initiate to check in and kind of being like and supporting like, hey, I know you're going through a hard time. And like to like welcome that, invite that without being like, hey, you need to check in. Right. You know, kind of like kind of it's a it's a bit of a nuance. And I'm I'm still learning. I don't think we figured it out. Maybe somebody here will come up and express that in a more clear it. way. And it's so tied to this, uh, I think, crisis of isolation too, or, the, or this crisis of loneliness, which is, you know, uh, the leading, I'm, number there one. I go, yeah, the number one just cause of, I mean, everything. Uh, no, it's really bad. It's like, it's, there's a whole chapter in the book uh, about the bromance, uh, which is a, just so revealing that we have a special term for men who go to dinner together, right? Uh, it's like, you guys are just friends. Um, but <laughs> cool, right? But like, oh, we're a bromance. Like you have to make a joke about it. Uh, so, but there's all this data about, you know, that uh, more than cigarettes, obesity, just these things that we would go to in terms of, oh, that's how you shorten your lifespan. It's actually the amount of social ties that you have just defines yes. <laughs> how long you'll live. Right. And so having more friends and having more social ties. And so there's um, uh, Susan Pinker went to the only place I think in the world where men actually live just as long as women and it's Sardinia this like tiny little island and so she went to Sardinia and she w- you try to understand what what is it is it the diet is it you know the things that men are eating there that are different and no it's just that they have more social ties they have more friends That's they right. have more of a sense of community and what we're seeing now is 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 yeah just people re- retreating you know we're so connected right uh but looking at your phone when you're feeling distraught and when you're feeling stressed and then like going through your feed and seeing other people's like beautiful, you know, life moments and everyone's doing great and fine, which is not true. And is just, you know, like, like looking like leafing a magazine, right. That's Photoshopped. It's just, it's, it's images that you're seeing. It's not a real representation of, of reality. Um, I, we're, we're really seeing people, I think, dealing with stress when they should be going to someone. We're actually hardwired. 
to seek out support. Where when you're stressed, you're releasing oxytocin, and that's a, a hormone of, of of connection. And so we're all so stressed. Um, and we're actually, instead of, yeah, being in community more, we're actually more and more isolated. And so it's 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 worse for men if you look at the social ties. So men have less friends. They have less in-depth friendships. Uh, the older they get, the more they, um, the, 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 the least friends, the less friends that they have. And especially if they're married and they're heterosexual. Right. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, my dad is like, I'm like, who do you hang out with? He's like, your mom. And I'm like, that doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> and and he's, again, the most progressive. He's Canadian. Like, it's just like, <laughs> and men, so it's, it's, you know, I get this question a lot of like, well, we get it. We're in San Francisco. We're in Seattle. You know, we're in uh, New York City. What do we do with men who really don't get it? And it's like, it's bad everywhere. Um, and you, uh, you know, talking about your own experience of, you know, going through your life, not really being in touch with any kind of emotion um, and and now leading men's groups and being, you know, the most involved and knowledgeable about this stuff just tells you a lot in terms of where we are. Yeah, I mean, most is questionable, but I will yeah. hold some level of that. And I mean, I think that level of um, the the topic of like how we isolate what happens inside of these spaces, it's it's like a fascinating area. And I, you know, one of the, when you, I'm gonna kind of revert back because we've got a few minutes left of conversations. So I'm gonna like try to like, okay, what kind of questions do I wanna ask before we turn it to the audience? And one of the things I wanted to circle back, so it's going kind of earlier to, you know, it, at this social time, at this particular moment, like this book represents some something that can shift the conversation within feminism. And yet, you're not the first feminist who's written about men's experiences. No. Bell Hooks, yeah. you know, really, yes. really started that. Yeah. And can you speak to how the will to change, like how you read that, how that might have influenced or shaped yeah. that? Because that, for a lot of men's work I've been doing, that still gets becomes like the guide post to how to even start mm -hmm. the conversation yeah. around deconstructing patriarchy in ourselves and yeah. what that looks like from that time. Yeah, I mean, Bell Hooks, yeah, wrote the the Will to Change, which is, um, and she wrote it like 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Like before, you know. So yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'm not reinventing the 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 wheel here. Um, and my the yeah, for the love of men would never exist without without bell hooks. And I mean, none of my life would bell hooks is you know. I mean, you know, uh, being a women's studies major and and so I've been reading and studying uh, bell hooks for for you know my entire feminist consci consciousness, I guess. Um, and she informs so much of it. And there are so many men who have been working on this too. There are so many, you know, Jackson Katz and Michael Kimmel right. and, uh, you know, uh, Ted Bunch at A Call to Men. Uh, there are organizations that are doing this work even at our event in Seattle on Monday. Um, there's a man who who founded the, the Seattle School for Boys and it's very new, but it's helping boys, you know, develop emotional intelligence and, and be effective, empathetic leaders. And so there, there are so many people who are working at this and who are, um, powering this movement. But what I find is that it's just not in, in, in it's not there in a mainstream kind of way yet. And, yeah. and I don't see it where I would really love to see it is in, with policymakers mm. and in government. I mean, it blows my mind uh, when you look at, yeah, just every, the biggest social problems that are facing us from gun violence to climate change um, to, to 
I mean, everything. Um, the, the rise of the alt-right, right? These The white supremacy, the young men who are being radicalized, right? We hear so much on the debate stage about the radicalization of young men in the Middle East. We don't hear them talk about the radicalization of young men in America, young white men in America. And what are we going to do about that? And so we need an examination of masculinity. We need an examination and an interest and a curiosity about how we're raising boys in, in, in this culture and why they're turning to these communities. And I call them communities because that's what they're looking for. You know, when they're going and joining and, you know, it starts with the Joe Rogan podcast and then it gets to Jordan Peterson's book and then they end up watching Fox News yeah. and then they're on. These are brotherhoods. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like they are. And and then they go to a Walmart and they kill a bunch of, uh, you know, uh brown people because they feel like those people are the biggest threat to their existence and 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 to their purpose and 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 who they are in the world and then they vote for Donald Trump right like these are th this is a social problem these people aren't inherently evil or bad most people are actually inherently good but there's something that's making them do bad things and so if we don't have policymakers who are aware that when we talk about gender that that doesn't just equate women, that that needs to equate every all genders and non-gender non-binary people, right? That there's so many ways that we are all impacted by gender. Um, but often when we do have conversations, I mean, I know this from uh, academics that I'm friends with who have told me, you know, they go and consult in a in, in a country and they're helping a, a country um, help I don't know, curb domestic violence, for example. And then the, the government is like, okay, we want to do programs for women and helping women. And she's like, okay, great got all these ideas. What about the men who aren't doing the thing? <laughs> that's the problem. And they go, no, yeah, we just want to focus on women. And, uh, and that's m most of the reaction that I get. I mean, even, I mean, this is on a different level, but even when I want to talk about this stuff, right. It's like, let's, we're like really into female empowerment right now. Um, and it's like, great. Uh, but, uh, women, we can do all the female empowerment we want. Right. But if we're not, if when we educate a woman, we're not educating a boy, we're not educating a man. And if we change what it means to be a woman, but we're not actually addressing that that's going to change what it means to be a man, then we are literally throwing our money out the window. Right. The resource allocation exactly. doesn't have doesn't cover this gender gap yes. in a way that actually would address um, some of the barriers of the problem, yes. which, you know, we talk about the devious situation. We talked about it with within the context of my community. Mm -hmm. And when that situation happened a year ago yeah. in this intimate partner violence situation that it was really hard for me as a therapist to find a group for someone in my community to actually be able to go to that I could trust as a as a brown man. I could they could get to be in a restorative process around un, un looking and examining that work. I was like, how come this is so hard to find? Like in the Bay Area. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And and we see um and and this I'm expecting someone to, I mean, no, this is mean, but it's just at, at every time, every time I, I've done an event now, I've had someone come up to me and be like, so why do you want women to stay with abusive men? And I'm like, I didn't say that. That's not, you know, that why are you putting this vote? And it comes back to our original point at the very beginning of like, why are you saying that women don't need anything? And it's like, no, actually helping men and boys is the most productive and effective way to help women and girls. Mm. Um, and in a society where we, where we fail to do that, we are actually not allocating resources in a way that honors women's lives and honors girls' livelihoods. We're actually making society far far worse and um and yeah it's just it's a it's a it's a it, it's it's a myth 
that we actually really need to, to 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 bust because we've been instructed to believe in this gender war, right? That it's women versus men, and that um, even in the framework of the Me Too movement and, and Times Up movement and you know Tarana Burke's movement, which are who have been incredible, we um, we I, I think in the their movements are very clear that this kind of violence happens to everyone, all all genders. But I think in the way that it's sometimes portrayed in, in, in the media and sometimes even portrayed in different kinds of ways, uh, we see it as like women against men and women are for good stuff and the men are doing the bad stuff. And it's like, there's actually a lot of men who are doing good stuff and sure. are against the men doing the bad stuff. And there's even women doing bad stuff, right? So we, we need to we need to get rid of that framing of like men versus women. It's, it's, it's us versus like, it's, it's all of, it's women plus men plus gender non-binary people versus rape versus sexual violence versus poverty versus white supremacy. Those things are, are, we're actually all in this together and our livelihoods are so connected. And, and that takes a, a fundamental shift in the way that, that, that we do policy. I appreciate yeah. that a lot. And I guess I have room for uh, maybe one conversation that you have maybe a three minute yes okay brief sure. on so I guess I'll give you a two-part way you can answer one direction or another right um, I mentioned this on the phone the other day it's like if I if there was a question that you wish I had asked or gets mm. asked to you is there something that really would be that question that you would have asked yourself or What's the juiciest part of this process for you? Ooh. You get to choose your oh, own adventure. Okay. I think I'm going to go with number two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that the juiciest part, ugh, I mean, the best part was what this did for for me personally um, to make it all about me, you know. Uh, no, but it's... I, I guess I didn't expect that because I'm I'm writing a book. I'm, I'm reporting on the experience of of, you know, on, 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 on reporting, um, something that I have not experienced, right. Being a man in our society, but I st really through that process examined my own ways that I was playing into this and that I was, again, we see men versus women and men are doing all the bad things. I was like, well, s women are also part of the system. And I, in my own relationships with, with, with men, for example, so I went on a chivalry diet uh, for the book, um, and I expected it to be very difficult <laughs> and, uh, kind of a bummer that I, I don't know, I'd have to like pay for my own French fries. But, uh, what I realized was that through getting rid of my own e expectations that were patriarchal and like toxic about what I wanted, what, what, what I would expect in my relationship from men. When I got rid of those things and when I abandoned those preordained roles, I had much better relationships. I just had the, the whole power dynamic that, that I couldn't even see. Um, right. We were talking so much about things that you go through your life and then you're like, oh, that was weird. Like that was not how things needed to be. Um, when one person is in control financially, of course, you want to believe that that doesn't affect the relationship and that it doesn't matter and you're not going to feel like you owe them anything. But of course you do. Or in my case, anyways, I was much freer once I was living in really equity in 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 my relationships and not basing decisions based on our gender, but just based on who we were and what we wanted to do and what we needed and what we 
wanted. Um, I just had such like a, a, it freed me. Like it really did um, to ask for what I want and what I needed in those relationships and not to stick around in relationships that maybe weren't doing that for me. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that, that, that inner equity. Like yes. how do we grow into that yeah. piece? Yeah, because uh, we're all we were all raised in this culture, mm-hmm. you know? Thank you so much, Liz, for Thank just you. this amazing opportunity to have this conversation. Thank, Thank you. you all. Let's give yeah, you're all great. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. 